0: All right. So another cool episode. We've been all over the place. We're going down to Dallas right now. We've had the young ones, we've had the old ones, and we're bringing you Kevin Cruz who's in, who's in clinical practice now for six years. This dude is all in. I mean, he is a real go-getter. He is. He is He has an amazing practice. Not only does he have an amazing practice, but he, he can actually discuss exactly how he developed that practice so well that he wrote a book once again the fro has no book but we're gonna to have to work on that but the bottom line is dr hustle is his book and it really talks about efficiency uh, tracking outcomes how you can have a great professional life as well as a great quality of life. So I think it's great wisdom uh, for young and old who are going to read that book. We also talk about medical device design, which he's been involved in as well, really developing his own rotator cuff uh, uh, tool, which I think is really cool. I'm hoping that he gets that across the finish line as well. Fun episode, great guy. I'm always amazed at how much people are doing. Even at six years into practice, he's on a great trajectory. Love the episode. You will, too. We continue to thank our sponsor, OrthoLaser Orthopedic Laser Centers. They continue to offer MLSMA technology for chronic and acute orthopedic pain as an alternative source to opioids and possibly even avoiding surgery. The franchises continue to spread across the country. It's an amazing opportunity for orthopedic surgeons and doctors and even medical device reps to become part of the growing technology ortho laser milwaukee and ortho laser rochester just opened we have another five in the queue come and join the ortho laser franchise family hashtag follow the fro
1: for medical media this is the Ortho show
0: Hello, world. Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic world. And again, we have no exception to that rule. We have Dr. Kevin Cruz, who's joining us today, who's an orthopedic surgeon down in in Dallas, Texas. I think that's the first time we're making the trip down to Big D. Uh, He's an upper extremity specialist, shoulder, elbow, and hand born and bred in indiana and we're going to talk about your football time at the indiana university for sure did his residency down in uh, greenville south carolina at the Stephen hawkins clinic fellowship at the university of pittsburgh where we've got some uh, friends there as well and then i'm really excited to talk about the time you spent in france as you know i've done a little bit of that too with Jills walsh so as well it is a pleasure to have you on kev how are you man
1: i'm doing great thank you very much scott for having me on i think uh you know, you've got an awesome podcast. I've listened to a lot of your episodes, and uh, flattered that you would that you would have someone like me on here, dude.
0: No, man, you got some interesting stuff. I'm excited to talk to you. You know, we're we're really having a real good time with this thing. I got to tell you, we've got uh, our uh, exciting pitch pro episodes that are coming on too, which everybody uh, I want everybody to know about. Which is sort of a Shark Tank thing that we're doing within. Uh, The orthopedic world with medical device and with pharma companies we've already shot our first three we're really excited about that all right so man so listen let's i like you know we'd like to talk our stories man we want to hear about what you're all about where you came from how you did this whole orthopedic stuff so so you're born and bred in indiana tell us about your life in indiana
1: yeah so i grew up in indianapolis small suburb north of the city carmel indiana um you know my dad was an internal medicine doctor that kind of got me interested in medicine and um yeah, just grew up playing sports and just messing around with friends and you know, played basketball, but you know, gravitated more towards football in high school and then ended up walking on and playing at Indian University. And I lived in you know Indianapolis for 26 years of my life. And I actually I always thought I was going to go back there and practice. I had um, a pretty good gig set up with, with a group there. When I was a resident in South Carolina, my wife's family actually ended up moving away to Denver. And when her family moved, it was kind of like, you know, I kind of got opened up to other possibilities. And so that's, that's kind of how I ended up in Dallas is I, I she kind of turned me into a free bird and she's like, you know, do we really have to go back there if my parents don't live there and my family's not there. And I'm like, all right, we can look at some other cities. And it's interesting. I trained with a bunch of guys in Greenville that lit uh, um, that that were UT Southwestern guys. Cause there's kind of a connection between UT Southwestern and, and Vail. So uh, yeah, ended up in Dallas, but no, I loved growing up in Indiana, man. I, I have nothing but great things to say about it. And we're going back here in a couple of weeks to go to the race. It's going to be a good time.
0: It was that Memorial Day weekend. Is that when the race is? Memorial Day weekend. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So, dude, come on. You just like skip over this whole walking on playing for Indiana football. You (laughs) are an all academic Big Ten. I mean, talk to, I mean, that must have been pretty crazy, huh?
1: It was good. You know, I mean, it was funny because I was, you know, I was, I would say I was a slightly above high school football player. And if you look at me physically, when people say, oh, you played football in Indiana, I'm like, well, you know, I lost like 40 pounds when I stopped playing. But, uh, you know, I was a walk-on linebacker. I sent in my video. I had a couple of good games when I was a senior. So I got, you know, preferred walk-on status. And then I came in and, and, you know, it was good. You know, we were, we were terrible. um, And I was, you know, an okay player on the team, but, I th- I tell people, you know, that that experience shaped me so much as a human being because it taught me, number one, like, you just go for it, right? Like, like you take a risk, and you have all these guys that always say, like, oh, I should walk on, I should walk on, and they don't want to do it because they're afraid they're going to fail. And, like, by all means, you could look at my experience, and I was a failure because my main goal was to earn a scholarship, but I ended up jacking up my knee when I was a, a sophomore, played one more year, and then it was just done. I had this bad kind of, like, relation arthritis behind my kneecap. And so, you know, when it was all said and done, it's like, man, you you put in all that time and energy and we lost all these games, but all the relationships that I built, you know, with those people, I mean, I'm talking to a guy tomorrow, one of the guys I played with about a medical device that, that, that I've got developing, you know, and I've stayed friends with a lot of those people. And also just the life lessons that you learn about discipline and work ethic and time management and, and all those things. Like I wouldn't change it for the world, man. Like it was, it was really, it was a great experience. And, it shaped me like as a human being dramatically Uh, and taught me a lot about just working hard and discipline. And yeah.
0: Yeah. No, that, that team approach that you learn, you know, I I played lacrosse at Tufts university and, was recruited to play football, but then I took a look at the playbook and I looked at all the guys that were twice my size and I decided I'm only going to play one sport, try to go to medical school. But I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the things that you learn in the playing field in the locker room apply to everyday life as you move on as to how you, that team approach of being able to solve problems and issues and working with people. Yeah, it's an invaluable experience, you know, for sure. So, all right. So then, uh, so where, what do, where do we got for medical school? Where do we go for medical school?
1: Uh, I went to IU med school. Uh, you know, there's only one medical school in, in Indiana. It's Indiana university medical school and there's uh nine campuses there. And, um, yeah, it's one of the biggest medical schools in the country. So, you know, if you're in state in Indiana and you don't want to pay double, you go to IU med school. It's pretty simple as that. And one other thing I would tell you, Scott, I, I can't believe I kind of jumped over this is the other thing is just having injuries, right? Like, so like when I was a sophomore in high school, I fractured my, I dislocated my elbow, fractured my medial condo. That was my first surgery. Then I had compartment releases, believe it or not, for shin splints when I was a senior in high school because I had these shin splints that wouldn't go away for like three years. And then I had my knee scoped. I tore my labrum when I was playing football. I've had to, I've had that fixed twice, so I've had all these surgeries. And the knee scope kind of did me in. That was like what finished me <laughs> at IU, finished my lustrous career. But it's actually nice to be able to like empathize with the athletes, you know, when surgeries don't go well, you know, like or when you have a problem, like you're like you have to stop playing, and and like you kind of know like when you're telling those young athletes like listen, I know how you feel. Like I know how bad this sucks to not be able to play your sport anymore because you have this injury, but like life does go on, like, and you will learn from this and this will be a lesson for you. And also just, you know, just having a bunch of surgeries and knowing what that feels like. Cause I mean, I do shoulder elbow surgery and I've had a bunch of my own. So that helped me a ton to be able to, to be hurt. It sucked when you're, you know, 20, 21 years old and you know, you're done, but you know, to be an adult now and be able to go back and, and, Empathize with those kids. It's great. Yeah. So I went to IU Med School, and you know, I like everybody else. You just sit out. You go interview as many places as you can. And I, I remember I interviewed in Greenville, South Carolina, and I remember the old the chairman there went to the Citadel, and he recommended that I read this book from Pat Comrade. I, I had already read a bunch of books by Kat, Pat Comrade anyway in high school, and it was called My Losing Season. And I went and read the book, and it's about a walk on at, at uh I think it's the Citadel, and it's about his losing season as a walk on. And I was just like it just struck me. And I remember I I sent him a long message and talked to him afterwards. Like, you know, I went and read that book and it really meant a lot to me. And he and we just connected. And I just for some reason, I just knew this this chairman, this 75 year old man from South Carolina. And he and I had this link and I just went home and I told my wife and I was like, I don't know why, but I feel like I'm going to end up in Greenville, South Carolina. I don't know anything about South Carolina. And boom, that's where I ended up. And it was awesome.
0: Yeah. That's a funny story for me too. I twisted my knee while at Tufts and, uh, so J.R. Richmond was the team doctor at Tufts University. As we all know, he's you know, an iconic leader in sports medicine, one of my mentors. And so six years later, or whatever it was, I'm through medical school or I'm applying for, for a residency, and I'm sitting at this big meeting with them all there in my interview, and J.R. Richmond looks at this and says to me, why should I take you into the residency? I was, well, you scoped my knee six years ago. And you did really well. You might as well take me. And that was uh, sort of broke the ice. And, and from there, then there I was. I went to the Tufts program and did my orthopedic residency. So stories like that, you know, are not uncommon. It's the relationships that you build, uh, it's it's those extra extra things that you do that really can set you apart and get you across the finish line. Getting into a North Peak residency is difficult. We've had many guests, you know, describing that as well. So, you know, so you're in your residency down in, in South Carolina, which is beautiful by the way. It's just great country. And uh and then you decide hand and upper extremity. So you go to to the University of Pittsburgh and you do your gig there. Who did you do your uh, your fellowship with? Who were the faculty?
1: So a bunch of guys. So they actually merged the, merged the fellowships, and I had some. I had an attending that I trained with. Well, Hawkins was in South Carolina when I was there, so I I, I love shoulder stuff. Even when I was in medical school, I knew I wanted to do something with shoulders, and um, you know, started residency. But it was weird. Hawkins had this thing against shoulder fellowships, like he he wanted everybody to do like sports or some sort of hybrid. And I was like, I don't want to scope knees. I want to just do upper extremity. So I had a I had an attending who did the Allegheny fellowship back in the late 90s or mid 90s and and this guy i mean he could scope a shoulder do a beautiful rotator cuff total shoulder complex elbow replant a finger like anything in the arm he could do it and he was slick and he did this fellowship so i was like all right i want to go there and they actually merged in the year the year was there so it was like the allegheny fellowship and the upmc so i had like 12 it was nutty right like this is nuts i did 12 one-month rotations as a fellow
0: (laughs) (laughs) so um, can you remember everybody's name <laughs> no
1: i remember i got to the end of the year and i was like uh i need to figure out how to do a carpal tunnel how i'm going to do a carpal tunnel because every single month i've got to change up so it was but mark Barrett was the head of it mark Barrett was the director and so mark's a big hand elbow guy he he does a lot of the you know meetings up at anna uh at the olc and then joe and Brilia was the guy who started all the fellowships in pittsburgh way back in the day and joe really actually was like a he was a resident in Columbia when Dr. Neer was there, like, in 1973. Um, he was the first hand surgeon in Pittsburgh, but he was an amazing guy. This guy, even at, like, 73, he would see, like, 60 or 70 people in a day, and we would get done at, like, 3 o'clock, and it just felt easy. Like, he always would tell you, like, Kevin, if it doesn't feel easy, something's wrong. You got to fix it. It should always just be easy. I'm like, all right, I like that. Um, and then they had a ton of other guys. Dean Soterianos, Chris Schmidt, um, um, Tom Hughes is another guy. And then you had a lot of, you know, I had twelve attendings, so it was it was a lot of people, and uh, but it was a great year. I learned a ton.
0: Yeah, tremendous experience. So, so now, did you go to France immediately after that, or were you in private practice and then went to France? Talk us, tell me about that.
1: Yeah, so I, I always knew I wanted to go to France, and I remember I, I went and I sat down with Hawkins when I was a second year resident, and I and I was like, I want to do this hybrid thing, right? I was like, I think I want to do a hand fellowship and a shoulder fellowship. But I found this hand fellowship in Pittsburgh where they do a lot of shoulders. I don't know if I need to do like the full two years. But so like I'm willing to go anywhere in the whole world. Like if you say it's the United States, I'll go somewhere for four to six months. If you say I got to go to, you know, Antarctica. And he just like really quickly was like, you need to go to France and work with Walsh. He's like, he's the best shoulder surgeon in the whole world, in my opinion. And he is probably one of my top five favorite people in the whole world. And so he made a, call, a couple of calls. And in France, it's real simple. It's like, we've got this guy, he wants to come be your fellow Gilles, you know, four years from now and Gilles sends back, please come, he, your, your spot's here. And that's it. Like literally like two emails back. And then I'm like, okay, like save my spot. And so.
0: <laughs> that's great. You know, like, There's no match. You don't have to submit an application. Yeah. You None know, of the craziness.
1: And so this is kind of a crazy story. So, so like, so we get into Pittsburgh, and I know I'm going to go to France. My wife and I are so excited. I get to Pittsburgh, and I'm like thinking I can moonlight as a fellow. And and they had this thing against moonlighting in Pittsburgh. And I remember Mark Barrett's, I, I told him I was like, man, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this fellowship in France, man. Like it's going to cost me like fifty or sixty thousand bucks. It's not funded. You know, you guys aren't paying us jack here. I got to go moonlight. And Barrett's says like, man, you got, you got one year here. You know, I really want you to focus on this fellowship. I don't really like moonlighting. If you've got to go moonlight, do it. But he's like, this is what I propose, Kevin. He's like how much money do you need to go to France? And I was like, I don't know, $50,000. And he was like, okay, I'll write you a check tomorrow. And then no, no interest. And he goes between you and I, you pay me back whenever you get the money. And it was the most like in, like I was so blown away by the move that he had just pulled on me because he knew that I wasn't going to take his money. <laughs> and that I also wasn't going to move like, so I went back to South Carolina for a month to work at this small hospital to get like 30 or 40,000 bucks to be able to go to France. And it was the best, investment I ever made. So I was in practice for like one month, just doing like locums and then went out.
0: Uh, and how long did you spend over there? Four months. Four months. Yeah. You know what? I mean, the it is a pretty remarkable crew of shoulder surgeons in France, right? I mean, these guys have, they're just innovative in their thought process. They're not, you know, stuck in the mud like uh, some of us American surgeons are where we take, you know, decades to make changes and Uh, It was a pleasure. You know, I spent some time with Loren LaFosse only for a week, but it was, uh, you know, it it was a tremendous experience for me and really helped to, you know, provide me... uh, techniques and, and ideas that I'm doing now in clinical practice as well. But it's just to be able to go to different places. You know, one of our our, our guests was Andrew Wickline and what Andrew does now, and I really, it was really pretty remarkable and profound thing. He, you know, every year he goes and visits, you know, a, another orthopedic surgeon. He literally just picks up from his practice for whatever period of time, asks his reps and says, you know, who should I go see? Who's really good? We should do more of that. I mean, we get sort of, sort of doing our thing in our ways, but I mean, one of the things that we've learned on the Ortho Show in particular, the connections that we have internationally is really amazing. And, uh, you know, we've all been shut away here for the last year or so, and we're all excited to be able to come back out again and, and share. But, uh, you know, great kudos for you to be able to really think about that, do that. And I know that that's absolutely elevated your game and makes you think in different ways than what you were taught. Not that what you were taught here in the States wasn't great because it is, but that the more you learn from, right, the better you get. A hundred
1: percent, man. Like I it's it it was it is by far the most the best investment of time and money that I've ever made in my whole life because it just shapes you so radically. Because I tell people it's just like a culture, you know, like if you take a human being and you set them away somewhere else, just like food, language, everything, it evolves in a different angle. And then you go see it, and then you 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 all of a sudden you start thinking differently and it totally breaks you down like what you thought was a certain way or you had to do things a certain way, you realize. There's a million ways to do this. And I think you don't you don't go there to be an automaton, right? Like I don't I didn't go there to learn to do shoulders exactly like Gio Walsh did, right? Now I'd still do a lot of things the way that he taught me, but it almost taught me to have like, just have an open mind, right? Like be willing to change and evolve and grow because like, dude, you just did freaking, you know, 12 years of training. And I always think like, I just kept getting narrower, right? Like you do college and medical school, then ortho, shoulder, elbow, hand, then just pure shoulder. And when you got to the very end, everything that you learned was kind of flipped upside down in terms of what you should be doing. And when we got there, he would, he had just started. I don't know. You, you're more sports. You don't do much arthroplasty, right? Correct. Okay. So he had started this company called I'm a scap and it was with a computer scientist and, and he and Boileau. And he had just started looking at the 3d mapping of shoulders. And so Gilles Walsh started a company with like a PhD in, in Boileau and they sold off bits of it to, to Tournier. But it, literally the month we got there was when he first started using it. And Walsh, like when you go train, and I'm sure it was like LaFosse, like it's like a revolving door of people from all around the world. Every week there's like, you know, surgeons from Tokyo and Australia and New Zealand. I mean, it's, it's wild, these guys. that It's like, there's like, you're only allowed to have – Dr. Walsh only allows eight people in his room at once. That was like the rule. <laughs> they're like, there's only eight people allowed here. So you guys are going to have to take turns. It was nice. There was some, it calmed down after September, but.
0: And then anyway. and they give certificates too. That was even crazier. It's like these doctors yeah. come in from all over the world that, you know, they spend four or five days or maybe even just two days. And then they'll take that certificate and they'll hang it up on their wall back in Tokyo or wherever they're from. You know, you got one on the wall right there. He's looking for it. I'm
1: actually, for mine because no, we got here for four months. Right? No, they didn't give a certificate. And we're like, hey guys, we were here for four months. We published like nine papers. We were there. Like there was three guys that were actually true fellows. They had visitors, but the guys and the fellows meant that like you had to go to the hospital and do the constant scores and do the research. And they didn't expect much. I mean, it was pretty laid back. But like you were there working, right? And when we got done, we're like, hey, can we get like something that said we were here? And they're like, what do you want? And we're like, I don't know, just like something that said we were here. And they like, they made us this nice little plaque and. It was special. You go. My <laughs> <own>. <laughs>
0: that's right. That's all that matters. All right, man. That's great stuff. So so let's let's pivot a little bit because there's a couple of unique things that, that you that you're doing, and I, I'd like to be able to share them as part of your story. So uh I feel, you know, Heather, I gotta tell you, uh, we're gonna have to figure something out here because every single guest that we have on this show. Is writing a book, and I got nothing, so I, I feel like I got to do something. So we're going to have to figure that out Heather, on the backside. But so I, I want to give you, I want to give you some street cred here, and I want to talk about your book. Uh, and I'm going to read a couple things here just as a lead-in, and then we'll let you uh, sort of take it from there. So so the book is is Doctor Hustle: The Nine Core Princi- Principles to Help You Build a Thriving uh, Competitive Practice in Today's uh, Constant Changing Healthcare Environment uh we are going to help you achieve the surgical practice of your dreams tell us about it
1: well you know you have to you have to write book titles like that unfortunately to get people to pay attention you know i always kind of feel a little embarrassed when i when i read it but um so long story short i got to the end of my you know like four and a half years in when i was looking at all the numbers in our group and i looked tonight. you know i was like you know, the busiest guy in our group. And when I started practice, I was like everybody else, you know, I came right into the smack of Dallas, smack middle of Dallas. So I've got, you know, Buzz Burkhead across the street, Butch on down the street. I've got 15, everybody's like, oh, it's so saturated. You can't get busy. You can't get busy. And I've got 15 shoulder specialists, like within two miles of me. And I joined this group. And I got here and I had no money. You know, I had to borrow money from my in laws just to like pay my rent my first month, right? Because you know how it is in private practice. Like, we don't pay people a lot of money to come out. Like, it's like, here's your job, son. Go make it work. Take a risk on yourself. And it's, if you can pull it off, it's awesome because you're a free bird, right? So I put my foot on the gas pedal and just worked for four years like, worked on marketing, worked on my practice, just worked, worked, worked to try to build and grow. And I've got a partner of mine, Rainer, who he and I are the same age. He's a Vail, Stephen Hawkins Vail Fellow. And at the end of four years, both of us were the number one collectors. And I mean, that's out of guys that are really well established guys. You know, like I mean, we've got some premier orthopedic surgeons in our group. And um, and I was like, you know, in orthopedics, nobody, nobody's gonna listen to you on the podium when you're 38, 39 years old. Um, you know, it takes time to build up that part of a research. I'm like, you know, I can keep on kind of dabbling in the research project so I can just kind of put out what helped me grow my practice, right? Because what I know now versus five years ago is like this huge chasm of knowledge, and I feel like if I could just talk to myself, you know, five years in the rear and tell myself these things would have been really valuable. So I thought, you know, I could just put this down on paper and and figure it out. And I just said, you know, like hire a ghostwriter or I dictated everything in my car, actually. I just dictated what I thought. And then I hired a writer and she helped me put it together. And I thought, you know, really just for younger surgeons coming out, like fellows first couple of years, but then like one of my partners, who's like 10 years older than me, like, I was like, just tell me what you think. He read it. And he was like, Hey, this is, this stuff's gold. And he, he made some changes about being efficient in his clinic. And um, it's really just about how to build and grow a busy practice and manage it and leverage it, right? Like all the things going on and, and there's just, it's so complicated right now and it'll be different five years from now, but just trying to, just what worked for me and, and, and obviously, you know, guys like you and mentors and, and, you know, clever guys that have taught me a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of it's just things that I learned from very, very, you know, bright, brilliant surgeons that I've worked with that I put to work and it, it worked out. So I just wanted to share it.
0: No, and that's great. And, and I mean, there's some things, you know, and I, I think you made a very valuable point in that, you know, when you first assumed that you were writing this book, who was, who was it going to be for? Are oh, the young guys first coming out? But, you know, the world is changing around us, right? With our with social media, the be, able be the ability to market yourself and, and develop a personal brand. Uh, what's your message? Do you want to be there until seven or eight o'clock at night? But do you still want to be busy? But how are you going to be efficient? Efficiency... Is the key I'm a huge believer in in the model you know my professor you know Michael Goldberg used to say, as long as you keep everybody moving like you're at Disney world, you know everybody's happy, you just can't keep them sitting there, but I've always said that my my patient's time is as valuable as mine, and if you're going to sit there and have somebody sit in a waiting room for an hour and a half and spend ten minutes with them, they're not going to be happy. But if you have a 350 appointment and the patient's in the room at 350 and you give them quality time for that, that period of time and everybody can be satisfied. So those, tip, those tips and, and pearls, you know, are wisdom, man. And that's, that's important. So I, I don't want to give away all of the things in the book. Give it away, know, man. Give it away. I think it, like a dollar a book. <laughs> yeah, well, literally everyone's <laughs> literally a book. one dollar per book. All right, come on, man. The Fro's telling everybody right now, you got to read this book. It's super cool. It's totally Fro approved. But having said that, let's talk about it. I mean, we just talked about efficiency. What are some of the things that set you aside and and gave, because remember, it's not just about the professional life. It's also the quality of your life as well, right? You got to have time for family and the other things that are super important. So give us some some of the the cool things you're talking about.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I think, you know, for me, I, I think you're exactly right. It's about efficiency, but you can't just walk into someone's room and say, Oh, you know, you got a big rotator cuff tear. I think we should fix it. And then walk out of the room. That doesn't work. Right. And you also can't spend three hours with every patient. Like it's not, it's not feasible financially in our world. Like there is a, a and it's so that you say, okay, what's, what's the game here. And for me, the game is um, how do I continue to improve the quality of care that I'm giving the service and the patient experience while still becoming more efficient. Right. And you can achieve those things like, and like, and we've worked on this hard for five years, right? Like with my PA, my, my MAs, everybody. And I sit down, I I think that's one thing too, is you sit down with your staff and you say, what can we do better? How can we become more efficient while still delivering phenomenal quality of care? And we have like great mechanisms for uh, reviews and stuff like that. And, And that's trying to be as objective as you can, but like we saw, we saw 54 today and we got done at two, I think two ten, And um, I dictated every single note in the room and that's it. And, you know, people look at that sometimes, like, I'm sure you know, these guys, like, like the, one of the guys I trained with in fellowship, this guy, booterball booterball saw a hundred people a day. And some people are like, Oh, that's too much. Like, that's too much. Like, you, you can't, you can't, it's like, well, you can't, devo- you know, you cannot give quality care doing that, but he can. And if he couldn't, then why are there a hundred people in his office? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's 62. Like, I mean, he's a good surgeon and people want that. So I think it's about removing all the riffraff and and removing all the extra stuff that you do in lost and wasted motion and, and being focused. Like, like for me, it's just, you stay in the room. Like you, I, my MAs and PAs, nobody sees me in clinic because I'm literally in the room examining patients and talking to patients the whole time. And every single other little nonsensical thing that you don't need to be messing with is delegated to the staff, right? And they, and they used to have an efficient machine with communication. And it's just all about the patients. And I think you're exactly right, dude. Like if you have someone that's been waiting for an hour and a half, cause that's what happens is you get behind. Right. And then you're late. And so then you rush. But if the appointments are to the point and you, you're nice, you give them the time they need. You always let them tell their story. You always have to tell their story. You never interrupt them. And sometimes it's hard cause it's like 10 minutes and you're like, okay, you've got to hang now. But, but, uh, but, but, <laughs> But you always let them tell their story, but then everything else can be really streamlined, so you're not messing around. Like I see like a lot of messing around with doctors in their office, and so you say, okay, then, and, and then it allows you to have a balanced life. Like you can have, you know, you you can't do a lot of orthopedic surgery without seeing a certain volume of patients, right? Like you say, I want to do ten surgeries a week. Well, then you got to see a hundred patients. If you want to do twenty, you got to see two hundred. And then you say, how can I make that efficient? So then you can go home and you know I pick up my kids from school, and I feed, I take my kids to breakfast, and then. You know, I play plenty of golf and do things like this. And so it allows you to have that balanced life while still being very productive. Like that's the key to it all. And for yeah. everybody that formula.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. But each one of us are different and we each run at our own pace. You know, one of the things that I, I've always professed about my, my practice is it's all about the patient experience. I want the patient... To be as comfortable as possible. I want them to be back into action as soon as possible. I don't want them waiting in my room. You know, I want them, I want them to be comfortable. One of the things that I found was disheartening as we moved into electronic medical record was all the time in the FaceTime of the computer that we had to do with pressing buttons. So we've moved to a scribe, which is fantastic. So my scribe is in there holding the computer. I'm talking to the patient, looking to the patient in the, in the eye. I dictate uh, my history and my discussion in front of the patient. So I say, look, I've listened to what you've had to say, and I, and I dictate it back to them, and they're nodding their heads. They say, he listened. that's great. And even though the, the entire patient experience in the room may be seven or eight minutes, that's enough for them to be satisfied to know that we cared. Uh, so that's great advice. Absolutely. Now one of the other things that you talk about, you, you know you mentioned the great reviews, and I think reviews are really important for people to know who you are. And we advise that you know you 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 encourage that sort of a behavior pattern from your patients if you can, especially, you know, the happy ones, but you also are tracking outcomes. So talk to us about because I think that's important too, right? People need to know that what you're doing works and that people are happy.
1: One hundred percent. So I used SOS from the day I started. I think everybody should track that. And and number one. The beautiful thing about tracking your outcomes is number one, like you get an objective measure for what you're doing. Like, and there's so many tools to do this and it takes so little time as a surgeon right now. Like my scheduler, when she schedules a surgery, she puts them into the system, right? So I could literally do nothing and all of it's already being tracked with ASCS scores. Now I do go into the system and I update the surgeries and the more data that you put in there, the more, the more you can get out of it. Right. But these databases, like for instance, Arthritis is SOS. It is an insane goldmine of information, man. Like, I don't feel like anybody really understands what that is. I think some people are like, oh, wow, it's Arthrex. But whatever you want to do, there's Ober, there's a million of them out there, and they're super easy to use. It's totally a no-brainer.
0: So one of the other things, you know, uh, that that you're doing, and I know your experience because you and I had a conversation about this offline is – is medical device design. And, you know, that that is a, it's a trying process. It's not easy to be able to come up. I mean, I can tell you, I've got two, you know, I've got two patents, mom. I worked really hard. I did good, but those patents are never going to see the light of day. I mean, I did that with a major corporation. We did it together and the timing wasn't right for them to be able to move on it. And so I think that, uh, Just give us a couple minutes about maybe the process. You don't have to sort of give up everything, but tell tell us a little bit about what your product is and, and the process of trying to make that commercialized so that it actually comes out and can be used.
1: Yeah. So I think it all starts with trying to solve a problem that you have, you know, like just like anything you say, okay, I've got this, this thing that I want to make better or this problem that I want to solve. And then you go from there and you start looking and seeing if there's any, if if there's anything out there. And then you like, once you get deep into this space, you know, like once we get more narrow focused, you, you, you have a better idea of what's going on in the world when you go to all the meetings, and you talk to all the people in industry and all that stuff. So um, for me, it really was simple. Like when I came out of practice, I use anchors and arthroscopic bone tunnels, right? And I want to be a value based surgeon. That's why I use ultrasound. That's why I use bone tunnels a lot. That's why I do I do when I do hand surgery, I do wide awake local anesthetic with no anesthesia, all those things. Because to me, the future is lean, clean, and just removing riffraff from our system, right? It's like, getting great outcomes, low cost, but, but high efficiency, all that stuff. So, so I love arthroscopic bone tunnels and there's a reusable device by a guy. I'll give a shout out to Brett Sanders um, who has an awesome device that's reusable. So you don't have to use anchors for rotator cuffs, which is beautiful. And so, but when I was doing you have to tie knots, right? And so I like the, the knotless repairs that are like kind of the, you know, the, 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 the fad or the things that have been going on the last five to 10 years because it's just slicker and faster and, and so I'm sitting there tying these knots. And when you get a big cuff repair, like I've done four tunnel repairs before with four or five pieces of suture through each one. So I'm tying 20 knots, right? And you can that takes a long time, right? Even if you're a fast knot tire. So I'm like, man, I really wish that there's just a way for me to um, link these sutures together, right? And then when I do my my sutures on the on the medial row, I like all suture anchors, right? Like because I like the small footprint, they work great. There's good 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 outcome data on them now. And so I I thought, well, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to do a double row repair with an all suture anchor, right? Where you have it as both your, the lateral and the medial row, and also be able to do a bone tunnel very quickly by having a device that linked them. And so that's where it came from. And I went to a lot of the companies and they were just kind of like, eh, yeah, you know, kind of, I kind of went back and forth. And then I found an engineer who was interested in it. And basically we just developed it together for the last three years. And now we have a product that's basically a little clip linking device and we've got patents and all these things on it. So I, I feel like I can talk about it. Um, that links the medial and lateral row together. So it allows you to do a bone tunnel efficiently. So you get the value-based surgery, but you get the efficiency side. And then you get the ability to do a double row all suture anchor repair as well. And uh, we're pretty excited about it. We'll be submitting to the FDA here probably in the next month or so, but then you're right. Like the hard part is just the the money, like how much money it costs to do this and the time and the regulatory. And then you're going up against these big behemoths, these five, $6 billion machines that you're, that you're going against. But Um, you know, if you're passionate about it and you really believe in it and you really want it, like the number one reason why I made this thing, dude, is because I want to use it like in surgery, like for myself. And I think that maybe other surgeons would feel the same way, but it's, it's not easy, man. Like we're three years in and we're just submitting to the FDA. And if you saw this, you would look at it and be like, really, that takes three years to make, but you
0: know, no, no, I get it. And, you know, that's why a lot of, you know, surgeon designers choose, to not take the hard path. I mean, yours is the hard path. You've, you've developed this thing, you've found an engineer, you've gotten your patents, and now you're going to the FDA and you're doing this all on your own. And, and what a lot of other surgeons will do with the really cool new ideas, they'll go to one of these larger orthopedic device companies and say, can we do this together, right? They then absorb the cost. The problem is you lose the autonomy, and then perhaps your project never gets off the ground as it was for me. So I think that's yeah. a great a great lesson, you know, for our listeners and the young docs out there that are coming up with cool new ideas. You know, you can persevere, you can succeed, and and uh, you're going to do this. And then, you know, hopefully uh, it becomes a, you know, a product that somebody will look at and say, oh, yeah, we actually need to buy this. And and then it'll be worthwhile and it can spread and you can share with others as well. So definitely yeah. a great part of the story for sure.
1: A part of my, a, a guy in Dallas, I know he's Dan Worl, He's a really bright guy. He developed Biomed's distal bicep system and some other things, too. And he and I, you know, we, we like to hang out, play golf a lot. And we have this, like, dream of starting this company together where, you know, it's surgeon-led innovation, a company led by surgeons for surgeons. And what you do is you bring surgeons on board, and you've got to get a little skin in the game. But but really, it's surgeon-led innovation. And, and what we're trying to do is empower surgeons to bring their ideas to the table and streamline the process. And the world's getting faster and smaller, and little guys can do bigger things quicker now because everything's so connected, Right. That I think that that's going to be part of the future, because when you get these big machines, it's not just about like what product makes sense. It's what's good for the shareholders. What's good for this thing that we've got going, this massive machine that's moving in this direction. Like we can't just make a new anchor, bud. We've got five hundred million dollars into this one. It's not that simple. And so you can be a little small guy sometimes and make things go. And I think in the next 10 to 15 years, I think you're going to see more surgeon entrepreneurs having more ideas.
0: Oh, I I completely agree with that. And one of my favorite sayings is like, you know, you can't build an airplane airplane without having a pilot, you know, around to make sure it's going to fly. So, you know, engineers and surgeons working together simultaneously on projects really is what brings out the best results for sure. Hey, Kev, man, this was awesome. We really appreciate your time. This is what we do here on the Ortho Show podcast. We bring you unique orthopedic surgeons that are trying to make a difference on the planet with the time they have. And you know, I, I love your your efficiency, your model of practice, your concern about patient outcomes and the patient experience, also coming up with new ideas for orthopedic surgeons to be able to use in in practice and surgical techniques as well. So you've been an outstanding guest, Kev. We really appreciate you having having you on today.
1: Thanks a lot, Scott. It's been awesome. I remember when I initially talked to you, I looked up online, I saw you did arthroscopic ladder jays, and I was like, Oh, this guy's the real deal. So I give you much respect for being one of the like you guys in america and then you kind of you got to put me into this pot of i don't like i didn't realize all these guys in america doing that but no man it's you got an awesome podcast i think you're doing great stuff i love your show and and thanks for having me on man
0: no i appreciate you this is dr scott sigmund hashtag follow the fro host of the ortho show till next time